You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Jerry Brewer, a sports columnist here at The Post. My guest today is former NFL defensive lineman and ESPN football analyst, Booger McFarlane. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Booger. Hey man, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, dressing a little more casually because you're always looking sharp. <laughs> uh, let's get started. Man, I, uh, but... I, I try to represent a little bit. <laughs> All right, let's get started. It, it's been a little over two weeks since uh, Bill's safety, Damar Hamlin, suffered a cardiac arrest on Monday Night Football. Thank goodness he's home now, uh, recovering with his family. How do you think the league has handled the past 15 days? And just for the sport in general, what do you think the aftershocks are of such a traumatic moment? Well, I think the league has done a great job because obviously, first and foremost, it was all about DeMar and his uh, health and, and his welfare and uh, how he was doing. And um, I, I think for them, not knowing at first whether or not he was going to be okay, they didn't make any decisions. They didn't know if the Bills were going to play or if the NFL was going to resume. It was one day at a time. Uh, you got to give Troy Vincent, Roger Goodell, and his staff uh, a great pat on the back for what they did. And, and I think as, as you move forward, once we found out that he was going to be okay and he started breathing on his own, and then he was moved from Cincinnati to Buffalo, and then he shows up at the Bills facility, uh, like you're just ecstatic, man, because prayer changes things, man. I, I think that's the biggest thing that we all take out of it as as a nation. Uh, because we all came together and we were praying for DeMar. And, and so for him to be okay, uh, if and when he decides to resume his football career, that's one thing. Uh, but for right, for right now, for him just to be okay was uh, an absolute miracle, and we're thankful for that. As we saw in that that video, Booger, in the intro video, you were significant in that moment. You know, there, there are you and, and Susie and Adam are on TV trying to make sense of it live. How tough was that to go on? Man, it, it was very tough because, you know, I had never been in a situation like that uh, on live television where life and death was in the balance. I, I think if you go back and look at some of my, um, some of the instances that I've been in, in my career, I was prepared for the moment. However, I've never been in a moment like that. I, I go back to when Kobe Bryant died we were actually getting ready to do the Pro Bowl, myself and Joe Tessitore. So we're live on the air when we got the news that Kobe Bryant had died in a helicopter crash. And then we found out his daughter was with him. And so that was a, a, a learning experience. That was something that was, uh, I'll never forget. And, and even before that, I, I'll, I'll put another one in your, in, your, in your pocket. I was on TV hosting Mike and Mike with Mike Greenberg the morning we found out Aaron Hernandez uh, had hung himself in jail. And so there have been a couple of instances in my life where traumatic things have happened. Someone had died, but never before had I, had I been in a situation where literally before our eyes, uh, life and death was in the balance. And, and I think for me, I just wanted to try to be honest about my feelings uh, as an analyst, as a former player, and show some empathy toward DeMar and his family because uh, it's tough. Um, I can only imagine how that family was feeling because it was affecting me in the studio and his mom is in the stands and she's got to come out of the stands. And next thing you know, we're talking about life or death. When I found out they were doing CPR for, for me, it really, it, it changed things. 
like as a football player, you're used to dealing with, you know, and I hate to say this, but we're used to seeing the head and neck. We're used to seeing broken arms, ACLs, Achilles. And, you know, we, we become callous to that. However, we've never been in a situation where life and death were in the balance before our very eyes. And there are millions of people watching. And so it's one of those things, man, that um, it was tough. Um, thank God that, that for me, in my own personal experience, I had some a little bit of experience uh, being on national television in moments of crisis, so to speak. And so I just tried to handle it the best way that I knew how. We learned so much in, in that moment uh, about the game, about what it takes to play the game from your perspective. I mean, someone played at LSU, uh, nine seasons in the NFL, two Super Bowl rings. Yeah. Uh, what did you learn about the game in that moment? What are you going to take with you? How do we frame this conversation when we saw just how brutal uh, just a, a really ordinary play can be? Yeah, you know, I didn't I didn't really learn much about the game. Like I've known the game has been violent for a long time. Like we sign up to play this game understanding clearly the ramifications of it. We play a collision sport, not a contact sport. We play a collision sport and we're used to being hurt. Everybody is gonna get hurt. It's not if but when. We all get hurt, and most of us have surgeries. I've had nine. And so I knew the game was a violent game, and I didn't learn anything, but what I did learn was that the fraternity is still strong. And, th and that's the fraternity in the NFL, the brotherhood. Doesn't matter if you're black, you're white. Doesn't matter if you're young or old. Doesn't matter what team you're on. That brotherhood is still strong. That bond is still there. Because as a former player, I sat in that chair and I felt what those guys were feeling out there on that field because their brother was laying there and life and death was in the balance. And so that brotherhood is something that no matter where you go, no matter how far you're distanced from the game, you're still a part of the brotherhood. And so I learned that it's still strong. And, and more importantly, I think from a humanistic standpoint, this country still, um, there's still some good there. You know, we get caught up a lot in our daily lives and things that matter to us, whether it's politics, religion, whatever it is. And, and some of those things are very divisive. But in a moment like we had a couple of weeks ago, it's amazing to me that when we want to, we can put all that aside and we can just come together and just say, we're gonna pray for tomorrow. It's not about wh where we're from. It's not about what we represent or what we're trying to uphold. We're gonna pray. And we know that prayer changes things. And, and so I learned not about the game, but about the brotherhood and about the power of when we want to do something as a nation, as a football community, as, as a people, so to speak, we still can do it, man. And, and to me, that's that's still uplifting. That still puts joy in my heart because uh, we live in a time where so many things are very divisive. So many things split us apart. And, and, and for a horrific situation like that to happen and to still see us all come together and pray, all you saw was pray for tomorrow. It flooded social media. It flooded Fox News. It flooded CNN. It flooded everywhere. We're going to pray for this young man. That to me, uh, that warmed my heart, man. Look, I got a two-part question here for you. Uh, what was the toughest injury you had in your career? Uh, not the toughest, I'll say the scariest injury that you suffered in your career. Was it the career-ending knee injury? And then as the, the second part of that question is, what was the scariest injury you saw happen on the field to anyone? Um, 
as far as this, the scariest injury for anyone, I think anytime you see the the helmet um, come off, they have to unscrew the helmet. They have to bring the backboard out, and they have to strap someone down to that backboard. I think that's scary because you never know if they're going to walk again. I don't think life and death is in the balance, but the, the paralysis, the ability to just to be a functioning human, that lies in the balance. And so that was always the scariest one for me. Um, from a personal standpoint, uh, it was probably probably the knee injury because I'm going through, I'm running and jumping and going through our normal daily activity. And all of a sudden you just hear this big loud pop and I'm on the ground and I look down and my kneecap wasn't there. And so, yeah, I knew something was wrong, but it's amazing how the NFL is, man. Like my coach came over and looked and man, I feel bad, but hey, let's move the drill up. Let's take the drill over. We're going to kind of, you know, make sure he's okay. And then we're in five, 10 minutes later, we're going to move the drill. But that's the game. Like, that's the game we deal with. And it, it, for me, um, my career hung in the balance. Now I was able to come back and rehab. And I got an opportunity to go visit some teams and had an offer to play for a team and just turned it down. And that sufficed that appetite, or that hunger for me. But yeah, that knee injury for me was probably the most difficult and scariest thing I had to deal with. When you suffered that injury, you, you weren't yet 30. And you had a right. lot of success in the league. I mean, you're yeah. a good player. Uh, how hard was the decision to decide, like, okay, it's over? And how close did you come to taking that, that opportunity and giving it one more chance? Yeah, it's tough, man, because football, for me, was something I started at 13 years old. And it was about how can I um, – it's kind of funny – how can I, at 13, figure out a way to stay out past when the streetlight came on? I lived in a small <laughs> town in Louisiana. My mother was strict, man. She said, hey, when the streetlight comes on, we got to be home. So as a kid, I'm still trying to figure out a way where I can kind of work around that. And I looked across the field one day, and I saw a bunch of lights on over there. And I was like, man, what are those kids doing? And it was junior high football. And I'm like, okay, so it's dark, and they're still practicing. Yeah, I, I want to do that. I didn't, I didn't even know much about football. And so I went out for the football team, man, made the team. Uh, and that's how I started playing the game. And the game has provided for me everything that I know, um, my work ethic, my ability to take care of my mom, my ability to get an education. Like the game of football has provided a ton for me, man. I love the game. I fell in love with the game a long time ago. And so uh, understanding how long I played the game, yeah, I still had some time left. Um, and, and, and it was difficult to walk away. However, the game has put me in a position to do what I do now. And so even though I can't physically play the game anymore, uh, it still allows me with my current job to keep in contact with the game. And just like last night, we were on the field in Tampa, and it's the most hyped game of, of Super Wild Card Weekend. It's Cowboys at Buccaneers, and we got our show uh, set up outside the stadium. Then we go inside the stadium. And the atmosphere was palpable. Like you could cut it with a knife, man. And, and to me, that's the closest I'll ever come to playing again. And that's okay because I still felt just a little bit what that game feels like. And, uh, yeah, it was tough to walk away, man, because of what football provided for me and what it did for me and how it set me up now. But at some point, Father Time is undefeated, man. Mine just came a little bit sooner than others. Do you believe DeMar Hamlin will ever play football again? Yes, I do. Uh, I, I've talked to a few um, doctors that I trust, uh, a few trainers that I trust, and they all say the same thing. 
as long as his heart and his lungs check out fine, physically he will be okay. They may put something uh, to protect the chest from a direct impact, uh, but other than that, he'll be okay. The biggest hurdle everyone has said is going to be mentally because it was a routine play. Like this wasn't like one of those hits that used to go on our show jacked up. This was a routine tackle. And because it was routine, um, that mentally messes with you because I'm sure he's made harder hits. I'm sure he's been hit harder. And so in the back of his mind, I guarantee you he's going to wonder, what if, how did it happen? Will it happen again? And so if he can get over the mental hurdle of what happened and how it may impact him moving forward, I think physically and medically, from what I've been told, he's going to be able to play again from what I've been told. Now, if that's not true, then obviously if the medical people say you can't play, you can't play. But if the medical people say, hey, you're okay to play, then I think it's going to be up to him and how mentally tough he is. Uh, Should he play? And if it were you, would you come back? Uh, Should he play? I think that's totally up to him. If it were me, um, depending on at what point I am in my career. If I'm a 22-year-old kid and I'm still young and I'm still vibrant and I hadn't made any money, um, man, that's a tough decision. But I, I think you can get hit in a variety of ways. Um, you can do things to your body in a variety of ways. And so I would probably lean toward playing. And I know that probably sounds crazy to some people, but I signed up to play football anyway. I signed up to break bones. I signed up to tear ligaments. I signed up to get surgeries. Uh, I, I know the risk, and I, I continually do it again. Um, it would be something I probably have to talk to my mom about. Because at 22, I wasn't married. 22, I didn't have uh, people directly in my direct family. I still, I had a brother, sister, mother. And so I would probably have conversations with them, man. But knowing knowing what I know about what this game has done for me, man, it'd be tough for me to turn my back on the game if the medical people say, hey, this is a once in a million um, situation. The likelihood of, of it happening again is 0. 0.000 whatever percent. Uh, if they give me that, then, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to play again. It's an interesting insight, Booger, into to the mindset of a, of a football player. And then also, I think one thing that, that warrants discussion that I don't think people always factor in. But with DeMar, you're talking about a sixth-round pick, 24 years old, first NFL contract. He's not a mega millionaire. Yeah. Um, and here here he is a six round pick who because of injuries has risen to be a starter and has put on tape that, 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 that he can, he can hold down the position on a great defense. So I could understand whether there is this, this uh, desire to say, Hey, I want to at least finish out five more years, get, get an actual sizable contract. I think we forget that the rank and file in the league is way more DeMar Hamlin than it is your typical, you know, say linebacker who's making five, six million dollars per season. Yeah, I definitely agree, man, because most of the people in the NFL, I would venture to say if I had to go by percentage, probably 70 percent of the league are are the rank and file. Like only 20, 25, 30 percent of the league are making what I would call um, upper echelon money. So top, you know, top three to five percent money uh not a lot of guys are making that and so there are a lot of guys that continue to bounce around and do different things because yeah 
you may be a, a, a lower tier player in the National Football League, but you're making $700,000 a year. Well, how many jobs in America that are making 700 grand a year? Not many, it's not a lot of them. So even when you can make that 700 grand, you, you go and make it. Um, and, and it sounds kind of, um, maybe uh, it sounds bad when you say only 700 grand, but when you look at it in perspective and compare it to the rest of, rest of America, 700 grand puts you in the upper tier in our country as far as income is concerned. That's uh, one more question about uh, player safety. What more do you think the league could do to make the game safer? You know, man, it's one of those things that they're constantly trying. Um, it's it's hard to say. It's kind of like saying you're going to make a make a car crash proof. Like that's kind of hard. Like you can make it safer. We can deploy the airbags faster. We can make the tires. We can do the impact. But at a certain point, you got to drive. At a certain point, you got to go a certain uh, speed and that speed creates power. And then when that power stops abrupt, abruptly, it creates impact. And so I think the game can be made safer. And I think they're doing that every single day. However, uh, there are inherent risks when we sign up to play. And I, I think the NFL every year is going to try to make it safer. I, I know Dr. Alan Seals, who's the chief medical physician for the National Football League. Uh, I'm a part of the health and uh, player safety committee where we're constantly talking about how to make the game safer. What kind of hits are we taking out of the game? And so the NFL is continually trying to do that. It's just tough, man. Like it is tough to take that, that violent impact that's going to happen inevitably and try to say, we're going to make that safe. Like that's hard to do. Okay. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about uh, black head coaches in the NFL. Uh, we, sure. we did a series in the post about it. Uh, last year, and obviously we're in the middle of another hiring cycle. Currently, there are uh, two black coaches in the league. Uh, as we see how this cycle shakes out, I just wanted to start with a question about a guy who coached you in Tampa and in Indianapolis, Tony Dungy. What was the impact that he had on your life? Well, Tony had a great impact, but, but, but before I answer that, I, I'll say this, because this is how the NFL kind of classifies it. Yes, there are two black coaches, but there are four coaches, um, four coaches of color. When you start talking about Mike McDaniel, Robert Sala, um, Mike Tomlin, and Todd Bowles. Uh, so that's kind of the, the way the league has phrased that and kind of way we look at that. Um, as far as Tony Dungeon, man, Tony taught me everything when it comes to how you can play a violent sport, how you can be a part of this league and still not lose your faith. You can still uh, have your identity. You can still uh, develop in the man that you that you should be um, based on who you are and how you live, not necessarily what you're around every day. Because the, the locker room is different. Everybody in the locker room is not uh, living a certain way. Everybody in the locker room is not cut from the same cloth. But Tony Dungy, man, was unreal. The ability to get your point across without cursing everybody out. The ability to motivate and lead without yelling. The ability to, um, in times of panic, um, in times of crisis, he didn't panic. In times where we panicked, he stayed calm. Uh, in, in dire situations, uh, I remember when Tony lost his son, man, uh, he didn't change. He's the same person. And so I learned so many different lessons from Tony over the years uh, through experience, through the ability to watch how he 
lived his life and through his words and, and what he said to us was absolutely amazing. So uh, Tony Dungy can do no wrong in my book. Um, and, and I think, you know, God's favor has always been over him. I tell this story all the time, man. I was with him in Tampa when he got fired. And I'll, I'll never forget, I was laying in my bed as I watched the late local news and it's pouring raining and he's got a box in his hand and he's carrying his belongings from the facility to his truck. And I'm saying, you know, the camera's out there, obviously the coach got fired, the camera's filming and they're, they're showing it on the, on the news. So you fast forward, we get John Gruden, we win the Super Bowl, I get traded to Indianapolis. We go on a run. And I remember back that night when Tony got fired, it was pouring rain as he's carrying that box to his truck. And you fast forward, we go to the Super Bowl in Miami and it started raining probably two in the afternoon and it rained all game and it, it, it rained off and on. And you remember that was the Super Bowl that Prince did the halftime show and Purple Rain, it, it was unreal. Well, anyway, we mm -hmm. win the Super Bowl. And as we're carrying Tony Dungy off, I thought about the night he got fired. I thought about how his life, how consistent he's been, how that the good Lord showed him in a situation to continue to be and hold your head up high when he got fired. He didn't point the finger. And as it's pouring down raining, as he's taking his last steps from the facility to his truck, now in his biggest um, achievement, his most crowning moment in Miami, he's winning the Super Bowl and it's raining. I don't believe in coincidence in life, man. I believe things happen for a reason. And I think sometimes there are certain signs that show us the reason. And for me, and no one can ever tell me, when I saw the rain, I knew what that was. That was a sign from up above that, yeah. He, he may not have done it in Tampa, but this championship and his ability and how he lived and the lessons he taught and the people he affected, he was going to get this one way or another. And this, this rain is just a way to show. It may, have, it may have just shown me. I don't know. Uh, I tell the story often. It showed me just how uh, how life and how God works, man. And, and it's, it's amazing. So, yeah, man, Tony, Tony is somebody who I, I will always admire and always um, – have a great deal of respect and admiration for him. That's just an amazing, poetic, spiritual story, Booger. I mean, that in any time I hear a piece of it, I can't, I can't get enough of it. That's just yeah. uh, incredible. I wanted to ask you, uh, when I think about coaching and and diversity in the NFL, obviously I think about race, and I'm greatly yeah. concerned about that. But it's also a diversity of, of ideas, diversity of styles, all those things that mm -hmm. the NFL needs to evolve with. Uh, how do they get there to the to a point where um, you will have uh, a better meritocracy of candidates, regardless of what their race is or the style in which they coach? Well, I, I think, A, you have to continue to push the envelope. I, I think we have to. Uh, you know, we, uh, from a minority standpoint, men of color that want to be in coaching have to continue to push the envelope, continue to make them say no, continue to be as such a, a good candidate, such um, a, a overwhelming choice that they can't say no. And so as long as we have and we present choices to the 32 owners uh, consistently, you're going to force them to open that door. Um, I do think when you're dealing with uh, ownership, 
because those are the people that ultimately are going to make the hires. There has to be a changing of the thought process. And a, a lot of them are changing, but some of them aren't. And here's what I mean by that. When you change your thought process, typically we, whether you're black or white, we like to talk to people or hire people or get people close to us that look like us. That's just human nature. That, that's not a black, white thing. That is human nature. I want people around me or usually people uh, that I can relate to are the people that look like me. Now, as we've gotten older and we've gotten more uh, diverse in our thought process and diverse in our learning, uh, we don't necessarily pay attention to the race, but we pay attention to the people I do at least. How Who can make me better? Like I like being around people that can make me better, make me smarter, uh, that make me say, you know what, make me think. And the more I look at it, that's how the diversity in my life has come about. And, you know, whether they're black or they're white, regardless, it doesn't matter. Those people often come to the forefront because I'm trying to learn something. I'm trying to uh, grasp the energy or grasp the knowledge that they're sharing. And so as it pertains to coaching, man, like these owners, at the end of the day, these owners want to make money. They want to be able to win. Uh, and they want to be able to pat their chest that their team is X, Y, Z. And if you can show them consistently that you can do that for them, regardless of whether you're black or white, to me, that's how you continue to knock that door down. And yeah, 70% of our league is African-American. And going back to my point, a lot of the players want to be around people that look like them. But I think when you go a step beyond that, the players also want to be around coaches that can make them better. And I think that's the biggest thing. Can you help make me better? Because at the end of the day, my job is to go out and perform. And if I do it at a high level, I'm going to make a lot of money. And so I'll be able to do a lot of different things for my family. And so I think people have to, or should not say people, but players have to continue to do that. But as far as the coaches that want to be head coaches in the league, number one, continue to push the envelope and show the owners that you're qualified, you're overqualified, and you're ready to do the job. Do the job. Two, have a plan and make sure that you're ready to work your plan and show your plan. And three, I think over time, as the ownership starts to change a little bit, uh, the ones who have never hired a minority coach, hopefully they will be open to it. But the, like there are organizations like Indy and Tampa, those are some of the more diverse organizations in football. Pittsburgh, Mike Tomlin has been there forever. So there are a lot of, organiza a lot of organizations that um, don't care what color you are. They just want the best man. And then there's some that have never had a black head coach. And those are the ones that need to uh, change the way they think a little bit. All right, Booker, we're going to get you out of here. But before we let you go, we got to talk about the playoffs. Uh, your favorite weekend, yeah. the divisional round is coming up. We're down to, to eight teams, four really good games. You get yeah. Kansas City and Philadelphia coming off of buys. Uh, what are the storylines you're interested in uh, in the divisional round? Oh, man, there's so many. Uh, Dak Prescott, uh, he got it done last night in Tampa, but can he go on the road against a rookie quarterback in Brock Purdy? Uh, what about Joe Burrow? Cincinnati Bengals are going to Buffalo. The game that we didn't get to see because of the, of the DeMar Hamlin injury, we now get to see during divisional weekend. What about the Giants? Daniel Jones was left for dead. In comes this coach named Brian Dayball, and all of a sudden, Daniel Jones is Danny Dimes again. Can he get it done against Jalen Hurts? Oh, by the way, was in the same position last year, and now he was having an MVP season this year before he got hurt. Uh, so many storylines, man. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, he's probably going to be the MVP. And he's got Jacksonville, one of the more well-coached teams, coming to his house. 
how does that game shake out? I think the storylines are, 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 are plentiful. I think this weekend, no, is going to show us who can handle the pressure, who can handle the moment, because there are a lot of evenly matched teams playing each other. And I think um, if I were you, Saturday and Sunday, get all your work done in the morning, sit back, <laughs> fire, the, fire the barbecue pit up, because this is truly the best weekend of football all year long. That sounds wonderful. Unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Booger McFarland, thank you for joining Washington Post Live. Hey, man, thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And hopefully uh, everyone that's listening and also yourself got a little insight uh, into who I am and kind of what I'm all about. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.